so this, um, like, kind of a number of education hour lessons, they're called that, through the summer are oftentimes me sorting, me sorting and segregating or wringing out what's been going on. And uh, yeah, education hour is a good place for that. So here we are. And uh, we're on the tail side of having gone to our family camp out at Camp Wilkerson, and that was wonderful. It's a nice place. And every time I get out there, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is great. This is, this is a neat place to be, um, nice and removed and just kind of our our own little crew there. We had uh, visiting us, though, as our, the one teaching, Dennis Turry. And it was interesting for me, just, in, just as a way in, how I know Dennis Turry is pretty simple. I just kind of got to know him as a pastor in a church, and I thought he was a wise old man and kind of wanted to get into his back pocket. Say, I'm, I'm interested in being around this guy. And so I kind of got to know him that way. And I, I knew that he had done homeschool things and other legal stuff, but that was kind of stuff that I vaguely knew about and didn't think to care about, I guess. But most of you guys, I think, have a different experience with him, which is like you've known him through homeschool circles, you've known him through uh, his political action committee and things like that, and various ministries that he's done. So it was, it, was, it was heartwarming for me personally to kind of see the connections that people had with this man and be able to kind of rejoice in, in some of the work that the Lord has used him to do through the years. Um, and maybe even as we kind of go on this morning. So what I, what I really want to do is just kind of try to grab those five lessons and say, okay, well, what was there? How, how do you shape this thing up, and, and what, are, what are some of your thoughts as you kind of work through that? We can talk it out a little bit. Um, so I want to kind of cloak it then, and again, personal stories are great. You can just throw them in as far as Dennis Turry is concerned, or me if you have a personal story about me, but mostly about Dennis. Um, so he, he came and says, hey, listen, you know, he's got this view of history that we call post-millennialism. So he, he kind of threw that out, and he also kind of threw out a couple other, like, Theological terms that you know were probably at least two bits uh, for each one. But what what does what does postmillennialism mean versus anything else, or is it just kind of words that you're like, yeah, I know that means something out there, but I don't have a clue what what uh, what that means. That's that's a question for you. Yeah. After the years. Okay, good. So that's that's a great place to start. The literal meaning of it is after the thousand years, after the millennium, and that after is referring to what. <laughs> What's going to happen after the thousand years? Okay, the physical return of Jesus. Okay, so you have you kind of have two basic positions eschatologically. Either Jesus is going to return after that thousand years, and where's the thousand years mentioned? Revelation, Revelation twenty, right? So that's the, that's the chapter where it has the thousand year reign of Christ mentioned, and Jesus is, is either going to return after that, post millennial, or before that, pre millennial. So that's the kind of basic structure. Of uh, that, you know, Jesus' return relative to the thousand years. Yeah. So, uh, I, just the way I, and this is my opinion. So, you, you you use those words post millennium. I don't think those words are in the Bible anywhere. It's a the term that somebody has, maybe church fathers, the credibility is to some degree behind it, with other terms. But then you jump to Revelation 20, and you, and then you talk about the return of Christ. Kind of to me, it seems like you're lumping. A bunch of stuff together with a presupposed thought about it necessarily. Well, that's helpful because I think I, I think eschatology is very difficult because it's the summary and bringing together of a lot of different theological traditions and thoughts and so on. Right? It's the culmination of all of that, and it makes it really hard because there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. 
from theology itself to anthropology, what humans are, what God's doing among men, and, and, and so, you know, doctrines of salvation are in there in the church. It's all kind of wrapped up together in eschatology. It makes it very hard. Um, and so, of course, we use shorthand, which any, any discipline, right, any discipline you have is going to have an inside jargon, inside language to, to speak shorthand so you don't have to spell everything out all the time. Right, because you can't do that on the job. You can't do that when you're working. You know, so there necessarily develops a technical language and a jargon around any discipline, and that includes theology. Uh, maybe preeminently theology when it comes down to it, since it's such a long history of discussion on these things. We have centuries and centuries and centuries of discussion on these very same uh, topics, and so we tend to develop a, an internal language, right, a technical language around theology, and that can kind of be a turnoff. That can be a hard thing for somebody to get into, so, well, here's all these words, I don't really know what they mean, and post-millennialism, or all-millennialism, or pre-millennialism are three of those words that people kind of hear and think, okay, you know, I'm not sure what goes on there, but I think where Bill started this is a good one, that a post-millennialist is committed to Jesus returning after the thousand years, whatever that is, okay, whatever the thousand years is, if it's like a thousand years, of, you know, literally, like 1,000 trips around the sun or whatever, um, okay. Or if it just stands for a greater period of time, okay. But after that, Jesus would return physically. That would be a post-millennial position. So that's really simple, right? Post-millennial, Jesus comes after. Pre-millennial, Jesus comes before. And then the tricky one, maybe, is all-millennial. And all that really means is the 1,000 years isn't literally 1,000 years. Okay, we're in, the, we're in the reign of Christ from his resurrection and, and enthronement all the way until his physical return. That's an all-millennial position, not limited to a thousand years, uh, which, of course, is sane. I think it's the same position to start with there. I had a hand. Uh, you answered it. I was thinking that all-millennial and post-millennial, is, I guess, are kind of the same in yep. that Christ comes at the end. Yep. So uh, both all-millennials and post-millennials are post. Jesus comes after. How the, then the difference then is more how they see the gospel impacting the church and the world through the ministry and things like that, right? So that's, they, it gets this kind of social and ecclesiastical stuff built into it as well. It just kind of makes it harder, yeah. Okay. Start? Good question. So um, if, if you read Revelation 20, um, we, have, we have Satan being, you know, uh, locked up, bound, bound with a chain, into the pit. Uh, we looked at some of this kind of extensively a number of months ago, remember? Maybe you don't. Anyway, we, uh, so if, if, um, if we think of the ministry of Christ, the death and resurrection and enthronement of Christ, that kind of complex of events, we say the all-millennial position, which is mine in this case, would be that Satan was bound in the death, resurrection, and ascension of, of Jesus. Okay, there's a binding that he should not deceive the nations anymore, not that he's not working and not that he's not powerful, but that he's not going to deceive the nations. And then Jesus says, now take this gospel to the nations. Go make disciples of the nations, right? He's sending us into what was Satan's territory. Remember when Jesus is tempted, Satan says to him, hey, all these kings are mine. Bow down to me, I give them to whoever I want. And Jesus says, I'm going to get them, but not that way. I'm going to get them through death and resurrection and my father giving them to me as a kingdom, not through bowing to the Lord of the flies, uh, to Beelzebub himself, who is you know, the ruler of the kings of the spirit's birth, or trying to think of the prince of the power of the air, that kind of stuff. Right. Anyway, I'm kind of going off far afield on it. Um, all this to say, and I'm happy to kind of answer questions. I don't really want to talk about eschatology. I wanted to introduce it because that's, I think, where Pastor Terry's mind was the whole time. He was thinking about eschatology the whole time, and he was talking about it most of the time as he was talking. But he was talking about it as, I guess, a background or a context in which he's focused on certain steps. And he had five of those along the way. 
Um, so I, I want to kind of put it that way because I think maybe it's easy to miss. It's easy to miss the eschatological hopes and how they're tied to the very things that he's walking through. And the things that he walked through were, you know, we'll, we'll look at Leviticus text in a second, but worship, right, the, the worship of God's people, corporate worship, weekly Sabbath worship, and then the family, and then the city church, that is a kind of broader church than just the local church, but the church in the city, and then I think finally political engagement more generally from, uh, as, as Christians. So that's kind of the, the uh, expanding horizons he gave us, you know, um, lecture by lecture, but each of those from, from corporate worship to the family to the broader church to the impact of the church and politics are all viewed within this eschatological framework of the reign of Christ. Not within the eschatological framework of, well, we're going to get, we're going to get raptured out of here when it gets bad enough. Okay, things are getting worse and worse, and once it gets so bad, we'll get raptured out of here, and then God has this other thing, and that's, you know, he's not thinking that way, but plenty of Christians do think that way. He's thinking this thing's God. God's got. He's going to pour gas on this thing, and even in the meantime, like things fall apart. Remember, he talked about all his work with the Church of Oregon City, and then he steps out. And he's like, yeah, well, things fall apart, right? So you have to have that aspect in your postmillennialism as well. He's very positive, but he doesn't. That doesn't make him think that every single step along the way is victory after victory after victory and confetti and you know that kind of stuff. No, we struggle and we fail, but God will prove His saving power by the gospel, in worship, in the family, right, in the church, and, and expansively like that. So that's the kind of shape of, I think, the lectures that he was working with. Yeah, Darlene? You mentioned five points, didn't you? Yeah, well, it was the fifth. <laughs> I wish I had taken notes. I sat there, like, sweating for the first half of his talk, and then I finally settled down, uh, and just, yeah, that was how it went. So I listened very well, but I couldn't, I didn't write anything down. Um, Okay, honor your father and your mother. So look at Leviticus 9. We can, we can start there anyway, because that's kind of where he started. And this, and this framework for worship that he gave, he kind of extends out into these other areas, um, whether, yeah, honoring parents. And again, there, there were five lectures. That doesn't mean he did five specific things. He might have done more than that, but four stayed in my mind. Uh, Leviticus. Okay. That's helpful. So, yeah, we're in Leviticus 9 for the 922, right, for the particular passage. And this is something I was actually going to grab the book on the way out of the house this morning. I forgot it. Um, um, a book called The Lord's Service by, uh, I can't think of his name right now. But anyway, it's a nice, thick book, and it's kind of a, a reformed Presbyterian entrance into liturgics, right? Um, what is worship? What are we doing in worship? What are the parts of it? And, and that kind of thing. I, I read a little book, a different book, um, it's just a thin little book, like an introduction to Christian worship um, a handful of years ago, maybe five, five years ago, and it blew me away how little I knew. Like, I'm, I'm reading this introduction, and it's all new. <laughs> Each word I've got to look up, and it's that kind of thing. I'm like, what kind of training did I get, or what did I miss here? And it's like, well, oftentimes, too often, I think, Reformed and Presbyterian folks, we got the residential principle, and we think we have this whole thing dialed in in worship, but we know nothing. <laughs> We're just vastly ignorant of an enormous bibliography that's every bit as big as the theological bibliography of Christendom. Think about the books on Christ that have been written through the years, on Jesus himself. It's endless. Like The, the bibliography is so expansive and vast that you're, you get lost. And the bibliography for liturgics is just the same. 
but we are unfamiliar with it. We don't know anything about it, though we sit on our high horse talking about regular principle like we know what we're talking about. I don't think we do. I think we're vastly ignorant and need to fix that. That's my assessment of Bible Presbyterianism, or maybe even American Presbyterianism reformed uh, stuff altogether. That's kind of how I see it. Maybe there are warmer spots out there. Forget it. Um, but I think what, what we're doing here is he was trying to grab... Uh, a basic structure of worship from Leviticus and say this is what worship is. These are the, if you go through the, the offerings, this is the order they come in when they're all together. And here's why. Right, so let's, let's look at that, 922. It's like a, a flagship text to begin with. And Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting and they came out and blessed the people, and the glory of Yahweh appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before Yahweh and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So a great moment in Israel's history where God meets them in worship, and they all, you know, amazing experience, and then Nadab and Abihu <laughs> the next one that comes. So God kind of checking uh, the, uh, the exuberance of humanity when we're trying to worship God and saying these are the things. So we have the three. First of all, we have the blessing. So after having gone through these offerings, you know, Moses blesses the people, or Aaron, sorry, lifts up his hands and blesses the people. And that's kind of the, the framework which, where does the blessing of God, where does the benediction of God come? He says the benediction of God comes after the series of offerings, after the, after the worship has been, um, has been offered. So look at those. The first one is the sin offering. And again, you can look back at Leviticus chapter 1 and see these, de- you know, run and following to see these different offerings detailed and read about them. But the idea here is pretty simple, that some offering needs to be made for our sin to make us acceptable and, and bring us into fellowship with God. That's the simplest offering. And that's kind of the one maybe we get the most. Right? So we think of Jesus, say, okay, he's the sacrificial lamb. Right? He's, or he's the scapegoat. He's the one who takes away our sins. Uh, like John the Baptist says, Behold, the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's a sin offering. So there's an expiation or a taking away of sin in that offering. And what Pastor Turi was saying is this is a reestablishment of glory, God's glory among his people. And as, as we offer that sin offering and our sins by, by his grace are expiated or taken away, God restores to us forgiveness, right? He forgives us, but he also restores to us glory which is weight, which is seriousness and heaviness. Right? He brings us back into this kind of weighty relationship with him that our sins had, of course, separated us from God. That's the way of God drawing us back in. So that's a sin offering, and that's the first one. The second one, in 22 there, the burnt offering, and he had, he had said a number of words, uh, and I'm not going to be able to pull them together, but how this might be translated differently or make a little more sense than just burnt offering. But what he associated with this offering is the knowledge of God. God feeding us, God giving us knowledge. And the reason is because this is the offering that the participants would uh, participate in. Right? They'd receive some of that back. And God feeding us, God nourishing us through the offering. And as we come to Christian worship, the first step is that we would confess our sins, look to Christ, and move into a, a weighty, glorious relationship with God in worship. And so that's why at the liturgy, at the beginning, we confess our sins. Right, we have a confession of sin and, uh, and a publication or, or articulation of the grace of God in Christ Jesus and promises of salvation so that we can be oriented to God in the right way, to uh, in, in enter into his glory and worship. And then he gives us, right? He gives us knowledge. 
And we can see that maybe in Romans chapter 12. We haven't quite got there yet. But the renewing of our minds is something that we need. Right? We need to, as, as Christians, uh, week by week and even day by day, to be renewed in our minds. And that's what's going on here with the guilt offering. So the sin offering is a restoration of glory. The guilt offering in the middle here is a giving of knowledge right, that God feeds us. And then the final one here has his peace offerings, which would be fellowship. Right? Where we ascend with the smoke, as it were, to be fellowshipping with God. And, and how that ties into Christian liturgy, then, is particularly the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. Right, so God, by his word, informs and challenges us and gives us knowledge and then comes and sits us down for a peace offering at the table that he would feed us and he, in Christ, he'd feed us with himself. Right, he'd feed us with his own flesh and his own blood to minister to us that which we most desperately need. So there's the restoring of glory through forgiveness of sins. There's the impartation of knowledge and, and wisdom and understanding given to us by the word. And then there's table fellowship from which he sends us out with a blessing. Right, so that's kind of the, the shape of the whole thing. That's, that's kind of a reminder there of, of what I think he went through, and maybe you have questions or thoughts to fill that out or ask questions. Yeah. So um, my translation says burn offering. That's where you started for the second offering, but you, you stated guilt offering. Are those the same? So the sin offering, and I'm, 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 not, uh, I'm not on top of the terminology here. I haven't even read this book either. Uh, that I'm referencing, but the, so at least, in the, at least in the ESV as we have the order, and the order here kind of is important. Right, but, but you, you would send the order would send burnt and peace, but then just a moment ago you referred to burnt offering as the guilt offering. Are those is that one in the same offering? Yeah, good question, and I don't know. Things moving on me. So the the burnt offerings is kind of like call it is is uh, I think the one that the, the worshippers share in. Right, um, and it comes after the sin offering. So was that just a mess? Probably. Okay. Yeah, more, more than likely. Because I was trying to equate guilt offering with God feeding us at that point, right? Sure, so right. Burn offering, I can get, but change the term, it kind of changes. Sure, and I think they are in different in different translations, which doesn't help either, right? Um, Steve. Oh, one thing that I really like you said, and I think we missed that today, is how when you go through Leviticus and even uh, the end of Exodus as well, you have about seven different kinds of offerings. Some of them are quoted in the New Testament by Paul and his says, you know, come forward as a drink offering. Uh, that's another one. Good. And usually when we think of offering, we compare it to the New Testament, we think of the atonement of Christ. And that's, of course, where sins are taken away from us, and that's very important. Everything we do is out of Christ. But then a lot of those uh, offerings were done just out of Thanksgiving, like peace offerings. It's because you're thankful for something, something God blessed you, so you just go and you, you just give like a grain offering. And uh, we don't think in those terms anymore, but that's Romans 12 that you quoted, that now we live as a living sacrifice. What does that mean? It's not that we are atoning from our sins through our obedience, but look to Christ, and we know that he already paid for those sins. But because of that, now we freely out of thanksgiving offer our lives as sacrifice, and that's the parallel that we just do because we love Christ, and that's a beautiful that's good. That's helpful. Um, and, and I think reading through, like I said, the, the beginning of Leviticus and reading about these offerings, how they differ when they're done, is very instructive. And the idea here is when the, when they're all mentioned, they're mentioned in the specific order, right? And that's what we have going on here, from the sin to guilt to the fellowship, um, and and that they're in that order on purpose, right? They're not always done in that order every time because there are various offerings that go on. But when they're done together, they're done in that order. That's the idea. One thing that, and maybe it's tied with what Josh mentioned also with family, but he had mentioned the, um, the grain offerings. Remember, it's not just 
bare grain, but you, you make the grain from your, you know, from your stock, and then you bake something with it. You do something with it, and you bring that to the Lord, right, as being part of your work. Sanctifying your work, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, as an offering to the Lord, right? Bringing in, that's your tithe, right, that we talk about our tithes. That's the fruit of our work, one-tenth of it, and say, because ten-tenths of it belong to God, here's one-tenth uh, to give in the offering to the work of God, and so on. So there's, there's that aspect to the... Uh, so I kind of missed that as well. But let's, let's start with worship quickly and kind of work our way out. And then, I'm, again, I'm interested in your questions or in your observations and things that you were thinking about uh, since then. And, as a side note, totally, um, I think we have it set up that, well, next week I'm going to Synod, right? I fly off on Tuesday. And uh, Pastor Terry will come next week to preach the Word and do Education Hour. So he'll be here next week. Um, and uh, so that'll be, you know, he'll kind of hopefully kind of pick up where he left off, or who knows what it was actually. He may do something entirely different. Uh, but that was the idea. Yeah, I think you can kind of pull that together into one sermon where we can be kind of charged and excited to in our vocation, right? Because that's really what this boils down to, is vocation. And it's vocation either in, in worship as a Christian, that's part of your calling as a Christian, is to worship the Lord. Also to submit to your parents, to love God and your family, to love God and your labors and your work. And, and off you know, the different directions. And, of course, the, the, maybe the hardest one for us, or the newest one for us, is the, the city church. Something thinking along those lines might be a, a newer thought to us, where the other ones are maybe a little bit older. Let's run through them. So I like that Pastor Terry made first and foremost the liturgy, the worship of God's people. Um, often enough, I think, we think of worship as not much. You know, it's like, uh, sure, we kind of get rid of distractions and come and focus on the Lord and and maybe even, even more than that, God feeds us, and he kind of feeds us in a way where, you know, even if we're at home, um, you know, reading the Bible day by day, he still feeds us in a special way as we come together and the words preached and read and we, the people of God sing. So maybe there's a little higher one there, and we say, oh, and actually God gives us gifts, each of us, and this is kind of where we give gifts to each other. And, and so we may kind of ratchet all that up and, and have this kind of bolstered view of, of worship, but all that still, I think, pales in comparison to what worship really is, which is going to heaven in the triune God in Christ Jesus in his flesh to say, here we are appearing before God in heaven so that we can be returned to earth and sent out, having met the living God, having worshipped the living and the true God. Uh, so when they're called to worship, as Doug Wilson likes to say, the, the roof is removed, the congregation ascends into the heavens, and we worship the living God in the heavens with the angels even though we don't think that, because we're sitting right here, and we're thinking earthly thoughts. But we've come onto the mountain, and we, we've ascended the mountain as the call to worship comes. And when we're in the presence of God, that changes us. Right? We're conformed to Christ, whom we worship, who's before our eyes, and that, that's the most powerful thing that God has for us on this weekly basis, is to meet together before his face. And so I like that Turi put the initial emphasis there. I think that's a great place to put it. Not out here in politics, not, not even in the family or other places that are important, but in the worship of God's holy name. And so by way of just kind of a quick application of it, um, and I'm, I'm as guilty of this as any of you, you might think that's funny, but not being prepared, not having my mind in the right framework and my heart ready to come worship the Lord. Right? I'm busy doing this and I'm running around and we're setting stuff up. and you know My mind's not um, prepared for the reality of being taken to heaven in Christ Jesus to worship the living and true God in him. And that's what's going on. So I think if we can retool our minds a little bit and then our, our plans, we can approach worship better. 
Uh, we, were t- we were talking about this camp a little bit. One thing Tim Hart always wanted to do, never actually seemed to achieve very well, was to get us to shut up before, uh, before the worship service. To come in and sit down and, and just take some time and, and organize your thoughts and your life before the Lord and come ready to worship, as opposed to jaw jacking about the tractor or the homeschool or whatever else is going on, which is fine, of course. It's good to talk to each other about stuff. But when we come, we come to worship the Lord. When we're done worshiping the Lord, I think, okay, then we get sent off in fellowship. But on the way toward worshiping the Lord, uh, it seems like it's good to, to sit down and have some time to focus your mind and do that together and, you know, to, to lift our hearts to the Lord together. So, yeah. As you're speaking, it comes to mind, um, like the Psalms of Ascension, right, where when Israel would come for the major worship ceremonies and feasts and stuff going up to Jerusalem, they would sing on the way to worship. That's right. They're staying in worship on the way to worship. Yep. So in that sense, kind of preparing themselves by the Psalms, these, you know, the, from Psalm 120 to I don't know what, 131 or something. Anyway, there's a little section there of the Psalms of the sense, and those are intended to be sung on the way to worship, and maybe on the way out of worship too, I don't know. Um, but that's that's an idea there of, of preparing hearts, preparing minds to enter before the Lord. Yeah, Miley. No sleep till Brooklyn, and suddenly you're in London, you know. <laughs> this well we're on our way to worship can we kind of get into a worshipful mindset or are we still like you know working on other gears from other days and that's kind of it
good. And even something like that, the, the architecture and acoustics and all these different things are built into a place of worship, which, just as a side note, whenever it is the Lord gives us a place of worship, and if we happen to build one, um, it must be built for worship, not anything else. Worship first, figure that out, and then the other things can come along, but the church is a worshiping people. We need to, you know, so we're, we're here, and this is, you know, we got these glorious little things hanging down, and it makes you hungry and thirsty, or patriotic, or whatever's going on. But anyway, so we, we deal with this, uh, and we probably just look past it by and large. People who are new, like Steve walking in or something, it's like, yeah, this is kind of weird. We're just used to it, right? We're used to this goofy stuff on the walls. But in a place of worship, we wouldn't have those distractions. In fact, the things that we would see in here would be focused in on trying to help us to achieve that kind of mindset we're appearing before the Almighty. Uh, that's what a good sanctuary would do, is remind us of those things. Uh, is there no thought, Steve Jessen? Oh, I was going to say that uh, even the Westminster Confession says the same thing, Yeah, and some folks, they're, you know, they, they, they do Sabbaths like in sundown to sundown, like Old Covenant, and there's, there's an advantage there, at least, of kind of coming together, having done all the work for dinner, for dinner, and then once dinner is served, okay, you can kind of clean up easy, and leftovers are set for the next day, and actually it kind of works out pretty nicely to have a Sabbath that starts on the, the evening prior. I would suggest that the New Covenant Sabbath starts at sun up. Uh, that's when the world changed, is when the sun came up and the grave was empty, and that's the new life right there. And so I think the new covenant Sabbath is in keeping there. But the practice of coming together as a dinner beforehand and preparing can be a very good one. Uh, it can be a, you know, kind of get the family maybe move in a certain direction, which is hard. It's hard to kind of move the family, even if it's just like you. <laughs> you know. Um, okay, and so any other thoughts on that one? Just the worship? That's really where he, I think he put the initial emphasis and where I want to put like almost all of it this morning is in worship. That that is a special and important time for us, and to to make much of it, to expect much of God in it as well, right? That we we should expect to meet the living God, and that He would feed us in Christ Jesus. That's an important thing, and that we do that in terms of glory, knowledge, and then fellowship and blessing, and that's kind of the way we're talking about. Maybe. I thought the peace offering part was interesting. That How about the Pale Communion one, too? You know, as far as him dropping bombs, um, yeah. <laughs> that's it, too. So, yeah, what you, what you, how often do you celebrate the Lord's Supper? Who's included and what you use are all kind of things that are, get, have been jumbled up, I guess, uh, in, our, in our context, and, and I guess historically in, in a number of contexts, too. But, um, yeah, weekly wine communion that's in, in, inclusive of the people of God is, is definitely the goal where we want to be. Um, I have no doubt that changing practical matters in the church, especially issues of worship, um, that's volatile. Uh, I just, that's the reservation I have in my mind that's volatile. And so changing slowly, maybe way slower than you might think, uh, just because you know, uh, things pop up and you have to deal with stuff and the, the long-term things you want to change sometimes take a back seat or maybe a lot of the time. But that's kind of what's going on as far as communion stuff. But I'm certainly convicted that we should have bread and wine for communion, because that's like what they are, right? The fruit of the, fruit of the vine is wine. It's not anything else. Uh, it's not blackberries. We're not having blackberry juice because that's the fruit of the vine. Fruit of the vine is liturgical language for wine. So bread and wine, not crackers and grape juice. That's the that's the Protestant transubstantiation of taking bread and wine 
take it and turn it into crackers and grape juice and saying it's the same thing. Oh, if you go to a restaurant and order bread and wine to give you crackers and grape juice, what do you do? Send it right back and say, bring me what I ordered, please. Okay, so that's, that's obvious enough, I think, and then how often we celebrate it. You know, that's, that's, there's nothing expressly in the scriptures saying you're supposed to have this every Lord's Day, but I think the regular principle and other scriptural things say, no, this is something that's a regular reality, a week, at least a weekly reality in the church and so on. So anyway, all that to say, I was convicted by those two and kind of wish he hadn't said it. Oh, hardly. Yeah, hardly. <laughs> I suppose it is. Okay, so, yeah, go ahead. So I just wanted to make a comment that that's one of the things I really appreciate. One of the things I really appreciate about Reformed tradition and theology is that worship encompasses more than just the song service. Most evangelical churches, they, they think of the song service as worship and then the other is mm. whatever it is, but it's not Good. worship, yeah. you know. And so that's, that's one of the things I really appreciate. Sure. And even the terminology, like you'll hear people talk about worship and what they mean is singing. Right? We had a time of worship. What they mean is we had a time of singing. Right? They're, they're uh, using it interchangeably that way. One thing, I, I, I like the same thing, but I also recognize something that I've heard from some of you. That it was like it's hard to, in, in those other services where you have a half hour of singing, it's pretty easy to get really emotional. Right? If you, if you kind of like get into emotional things, and that's worshipful and good, and there's, you know, that's a good thing. Where it's a little harder to kind of get into a I don't know, an emotional groove when we're in a dialogical uh, approach to worship. Where God speaks, we speak back. God speaks to us, we speak back. There's not really time to cry and fall in the heap and, you know, when tears on the floor in the middle of that. Though maybe there is, right? I mean, I'm saying they can't. But, but generally, it's, it's, not, it's not engineered, and I think oftentimes the modern worship experience is engineered at manipulating your emotions through all sorts of means, right? That one being preeminent and lights and fog hog and you name it. Um, Right, so, but we're not into that. I, I am, as, as your minister, into your emotions. I want you to love the Lord your God with your heart. Uh, I want you to fall before Him and realize that He's infinite and you're puny and beyond being puny or sinful, and humble yourself before the Lord with tears and wailing to, that He would raise you up. I want all that for you. We want that in worship, but worship is a, a, a kind of staid working thing that. If, if, we're, if we're going that way at it, then it tends to cut out some problems, but maybe also tends to hamper us as well. So getting it right, uh, we're, still, we're still aiming at that um, in the worship. Okay, any other thoughts? Yeah, I need something. Cool. Uh, I like what you said about uh, reforming worship, because usually people do think about worship, but oh, the more active part of worship is when we're singing. But actually, when you look in Scripture, the main verse to worship is here. Here, the old people is, or the Lord is one. Okay, yeah. And we usually think of, oh, now the pastor is preaching, so that's the passive side of worship. I'm just listening. But actually, the action of hearing is the more active part of worship. Like, the main part of what you should be paying attention, and it's your job to hear, and you're worshiping God through your hearing. That's great. And isn't it, isn't it all too easy to hear passively, right? Yeah. Just like, oh, I'm just taking this post to an active listening, right? Uh, which we all know what that is. And we can all kind of look at our own lives and say, oh, yeah, there's a situation where I was really listening hard, really trying to pick up and understand the person I'm talking to or whatever it is. And say, oh, well, that's how we should be listening to all of it, right, and participating in the, in the, in the Lord's Day of worship. So this, the structure then of what's say like glory, knowledge, and fellowship, that kind of three-part thing in the worship, then he pushed to extend the family and into work and into politics, the same kind of structure 
and just to show maybe in family how it works because we're out of time, is the, the forgiveness and relational realities that we have with God in worship is something then we extend out to one another. Right? We, we extend out forgiveness because we've been forgiven. Uh, God's given us weight. He's told us, which is to say, He's told us you're important. Right? You're, you're important. And God loves you so much that He sent His Son, His everlasting and eternal Son, to die for you. That's how much He loves you. Right? Uh, and and that's, that should make you think, oh, wow. I, I guess in that sense it's, humil- it's, it's humbling, but I'm important. Right? God thinks I'm important. God loves me. God sent his son for me. And that gives us a weight and a, uh, a glory. And I think we extend that to one another as well. In our forgiveness in the family, husband, wife, or with kids and parents and so on, you extend from there. But the, and, and that we, we give each other that weight, that you're important, that your wife's important, that your children are important, that your parents are important, that your cousins and so on. Right? We kind of extend that. And then the issue of knowledge, like I imagine just living the Word of God, having it in our mouth, having a teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, living our lives in such a way that we uh, live the knowledge of God and then enjoy fellowship in that as well. So, again, forgiveness and glory, knowledge and fellowship kind of work into these different areas uh, that he's kind of pushing this out into, uh, from the home to the marriage to uh, the, the regional church or the city church, and all the way out into our politics as they go. Um, so there's a little bit of a recap as we wrap up. Any, any final thoughts? Just on, even on the, you know, not just what we talked about this morning, but the experience of being out there and, and being ministered to and take, kind of taking that in and talking about it. I heard some good discussions going on among folks, so I was maybe happy like that. Um, And when the things fall apart is that the, the light comes after the darkness. Right? Um, the resurrection comes after death. And so we're called to go forth and die in Christ, looking for his resurrection, looking for him to lift us up, looking for his blessing on our work, not because we're so snazzy, we work so well, we've got such well-laid plans. Not that we shouldn't be snazzy and work well and have well-laid plans, but because of the blessing of God, right? that it's his grace and, and his work. So... The, the, the light comes after the darkness, right? The morning comes after the dawn. So expect the struggle. Expect things to fall apart. Expect to have problems. But expect God to be working in that and bringing out his glory and all that. So that is a, an encouraging, and it's definitely an encouraging reality as we struggle, right? As we get plowed on the back and whatnot. Go read the psalm. Um, good. Let's close there. Thanks for participation. All right.